Good morning once again. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 19. And as you're turning there, just uh, want to say thank you to Mike and the men's ministry team and organizing the workday to help us move. Um, it's a great joy. And so today we are taking a break from our Proverbs uh, sermon series. I shared last week that we would be uh, doing this because as we've been working our way through Proverbs, uh, just to highlight that Proverbs speaks very directly about our relationships, that we need to understand things about relationships if we're going to be growing in wisdom, to understand things about friendship and the importance of it, that if you're married, to understand things about marriage. And next week, we're going to be thinking about uh, parenting. But today, we're going to be taking up the neglected, neglected topic of singleness. And the reason why is actually uh, one that's motivated by, by pastoral concern. Because whenever I preach about marriage, I frequently hear the question about what does this mean for me as a single person? Because when there's an unintended consequence of frequently preaching on marriage, and it's that singles feel misplaced and left out, wondering what their place is within the life of the church. So one writer, Lauren Winter, gave voice to this by pointing out this, that Sunday mornings can be the loneliest part of the week. It can be dispiriting to sit alone in a church seemingly full of married couples. And so I don't want any single person or any person based upon their relationship status to feel alone within God's family, but it's also more than that. Because we need to recover and understand a godly vision for our life today. But there's also this temptation that whenever we think about singleness, that anyone who's married just uh, checks out. But that would actually be quite harmful uh, to you as a married person. And you'll see why in a bit. But so today we're going to be thinking about what God says about uh, singleness. And we're looking at two passages, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12, and also 1 Corinthians 7. So let's give our careful attention to God's word now. This is from the Gospel of Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And then turning to second, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 6 and 7 and some other verses. 
verses 6 and 7. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and of another. In verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would minister to our hearts through your word, by the power of your spirit, that your spirit would plant your word deep in our life, that we would grow, see your beauty and grow in godliness and grow in contentment and hear your, and receive your word to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. John Stott was a famous pastor, theologian, missionary, writer. Uh, he lived for 90 years, dying in 2011. And for his entire life, he was single. And at the end of his life, he said this about his singleness. That singleness, yes, it is hard. And I wish someone would be at home t- to make me a cup of tea. But it is an incredibly fulfilling life. Perhaps that is surprising to, to, to hear, that singleness, it can be incredibly fulfilling and, and joyful in life. Because there's something that we do within the church, and I've said this last week, that we make marriage and family into a, a big idol. And one of the things, that the byproducts of that is that we can make other people who aren't in the same relationship status as us as married you know, within our families to feel lonely. But what we have to do as the church, while upholding God's design for the church and our marriage and sexual ethics, we need to provide lasting comfort to people who are lonely. And this is where, this is actually what John Stott understood. And this is what I want us to explore this morning. That he understood something about singleness that found it fulfilling and attractive. If you look at his life, while he was a single man, he was a spiritual father. And many people today who are writers and ministers would point to him as their spiritual father. So what did he understand? What he understood was this, is that singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of God's love. That singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of God's love and companionship for all of life. And this is what I want us to consider this morning, looking at these two passages. But let's just jump right on into Matthew 19. Because here's the are the Pharisees, and they're coming to Jesus. They're asking Jesus about marriage and divorce. And he gives this incredible answer to them. But then I want us to hear what the disciples hear. That we, want, we need to hear the disciples' words. The because they're there and they're listening to Jesus talk. And they say, 
it would be better if we don't get married then. If what you are saying is true, then it would be better not to get married. I simply want to point out that this is a major reversal as, as to how we think and talk about singleness within the church. That I can point to specific books and counsel where the idea is like, hey, let use your singleness and grow in godliness and prepare for uh, a spouse. That could be one line of thought. Or another line of thought is that singleness is, is lonely and hard. Yes, it is. It is. And it takes a special calling. So move on to get married. It would be easier. See, in those mindsets, that is how typically singleness is spoken about within the church. But at this point, I want us to think about what Jesus is saying actually about marriage. That Jesus is simply highlighting that his take on marriage and singleness is very different than our own. And so we need to understand what Jesus is saying for a very important reason. That if you're single now, you have a very obvious and invested interest in this topic. But here's also the other truth, that if you're married, there will be a day that you will be a single person again, likely due to death. That your spouse may die before you or you will die before them. So there's something in your own life today that you have to think about today to prepare for as well. So thinking about this, what do we misunderstand about singleness? What do we misunderstand about singleness? At the very beginning of Scripture, in the creation story, God makes Adam and Eve. And as he's making this world, he says, this is good. This is very good. That's what God is saying throughout the creation story. But then there comes a moment when there's something, and God says, this is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. That's Genesis 2.18. So here's Adam, the very first human. He did not have any companions whatsoever. And just to highlight this, this is something that we've been talking about in our relationships course, that humanity is made in the image of God, that here's our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists in perfect community. And we reflect our God in community back to him by being in community and relationship with him, but also with one another. And so this is why it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so God's answer to that is by, God's answer is that here's Adam in his loneliness and he provides for him. He provides a helper fit for him through Eve. And that word helper in the Hebrew is actually referred to, uh, is used elsewhere to describe God in the Old Testament. And so here is one picture of marriage. Yes, Adam and Eve being partners together and exercising dominion over this world. But this is also where our misunderstanding of singleness may arise. Because it is tempting to quickly conclude that our answer to loneliness is marriage. That is a misunderstanding. That if, you would, or if you're single then, then it would be, you would think, hey, I'm an incomplete Person. But there's two problems with this misunderstanding. One is just highlighting uh, something about our dynamic within marriage, that you can actually be a very lonely person within marriage. When, when you stop communicating to one another, where there's a lack of apologies, where there's a lack of repairing your relationship and grant, giving forgiveness, right, that you can be married and be a very lonely person. You experience this as well. If you are around... People all day long, perhaps even as a teacher or as a co as in the workplace, you can be around people all day long and feel alone. That's just something to highlight. 
But number two, the thing to also consider is that Jesus is the most perfect person who has ever lived. But Jesus never, sat, Jesus never had sex, he never got married, and he was never a parent. What we see from Jesus is that singleness is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. This is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He says this, that I wish that all were as I myself am, but each of us has his own gift from God, one from of one kind and one of another. That here's singleness as a good gift, and this is something we don't understand. So why don't we think as singleness as a good gift from God? Well, Jesus gives us a few answers to this from Matthew 19, and he highlights some of the reasons why people are single here, but he uses this language of eunuch to help us understand a few things. That in verse this is Matthew 19. He says that some are single because they're eunuchs from birth. That he's pointing out that there are some people who are single because of physical deformities and needs that prevent marriage. And we know these things are not good and we grieve them and we should grieve them and mourn them. Something else that he adds is that some are eunuchs because they've made eunuchs by other people. And Jesus, yes, in his context, is thinking about men who have been physically castrated, forced into governmental service. But there's other things that can be directly applied from here. About family dynamics, for example. Growing up, there was this family in my church. Uh, I've mentioned them before. Um, Bill had surgery when he was 45 years old and he became blind. And the person who cared for him for the next 45 years of his life was, was his sister. And that's a, one example of physical, uh, family dynamics that I'm, being, I'm pointing to. Another example could just be like, like of having your feelings and your love for others not being reciprocated as well. But that dynamic that I'm talking about right there of not having your feelings reciprocated, it is very easy to wonder that if you have been rejected, that you can associate yourself with that. You say, why am I not lovable? Why am I not loved? There can be these feelings of shame that can come with singleness. And these feelings of shame can really point us to and make us feel like the singleness is not a good thing, that I'm the problem here. But you should never be ashamed of your singleness. Singleness is a good gift from God. It is a good gift for Jesus. It's a good gift for Paul. Paul says, I wish that more people were like me here. And that Jesus even says that some intentionally make this choice to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So all this time, I've been, we've been saying that singleness is a good gift. And we've been thinking about what we, under, what we misunderstand about it. But why? Let's, okay, why? Why is singleness a good gift? Go back to what I said at the very beginning, that singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of God's love. Singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of God's love and companionship of all of life. Uh, here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, and he reminds us of something actually that, that's very obvious uh, to us, that marriage brings incredible responsibilities. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
And this is not just true for the husband, it's also true for wives as well. And so Paul reminds us that marriage brings about concerns that exist outside of you as a person. They exist to the other person. That marriage brings to you a certain set of responsibilities because of a simple reality. That when you are married, you are not your own person. If a friend says to you, hey, let's get together, let's go um, and... And let's go out and do something. You simply have to say, let me check the family calendar. That's something that you say quite a bit as a married person. That even if, like just to highlight that your time is not your own. See, marriage takes commitment, coordination, planning, even if you feel like it or not. But in singleness, you don't have these Concerns. You don't have these responsibilities, commitments, and anxieties. That there's this, fr- this freedom and empowerment to simply do things. And th- where it can be tempting to think that you can do whatever you want. But Paul says actually something different. That the unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord to please him and to continue how to be holy in body and in spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean here to be anxious for the things of the Lord? Now, contrary to our cultural wisdom today, the reality is our single years are not an extension of being a teenager, of simply doing, having lots of fun with minimal responsibilities. Paul tells us that our singleness ought to be used to grow in holiness, in body, and in spirit. He wants you to use your singleness to be anxious about the Lord, learning about Him, spending time with Him, growing in intimacy and friendship with Him, spending time in prayer, serving others, building relationships, being spiritual siblings to one another, sharing the gospel, and wonderfully even becoming spiritual parents to others as well. So one writer, Peter Scazzaro, he points something out in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader. He says that our marriages and singleness are frameworks to display the gospel. Marriages are pictures of the depth of God's love. And singleness are pictures of the breadth of God's love. So how is singleness a picture of the breadth of God's love? The simple answer is that there's a freedom to pursue relationships and opportunities. Think about the Apostle Paul who's going on missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean regions. That was a tongue twister for some reason. Three times. That everywhere he went as he's preaching the gospel and planting churches, he had a family. He had a family. And he referred to Timothy and Titus as his sons in the faith. That's just Paul, for example. One, another writer today, Sam Alberry. He wrote a book entitled Singleness, and it's incredibly beneficial. I would encourage you to read it. He writes this, that singleness gives me a capacity for a range of friendships, a more flexible lifestyle, makes it possible to see them in a way I could not imagine if I had my own family to look after. So some time ago, a couple I am close to called me to say that they had some sudden bad news from their doctor and were in distress. Being single made it easy to drop everything, throw a toothbrush in an overnight bag, jump in the car, and go visit them. It meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to them to be able to do that. So just taking Sam's um, life experience there for a moment. Ask yourself this question. 
Isn't that a gift? Isn't that a good thing? And if you're single, how could you do this? How could you embrace this? See, singleness is a framework to show just how far and wide God's love reaches. That you can be present. You can be available. And yet, I don't want to dismiss something that even John Stott highlighted. That there can be this deep loneliness. And one of the men I believe he discipled is Ed Shaw. And this is what Ed Shaw wrote in his book, The Plausibility Question. He says this, that I have what I call kitchen floor moments. I call them this because they involve me sitting on the kitchen floor, but I am not doing anything useful like scrubbing it, although it can always benefit from that. Instead, I am there on the kitchen floor crying. And the reasons for my crying is my acute pain I sometimes feel as a result of not having a partner, sex, children, and the rest. I want to highlight once again the loneliness and so this is a question for all of us, especially those with families and, and, and marriages. How can we encourage one another in the midst of loneliness of life? How can we encourage one another in the midst of loneliness of life? Yes, there's a simple, uh, quick answer where we can say, yes, we, need, we can encourage one another by being available and present and practicing hospitality, opening people into our lives and our, and our homes, giving the opportunity for uh, friends to call our children uh, their nieces and nephews, adopted nieces and nephews, or adopted aunts and uncles, our children calling others adopted aunts and uncles. uncles. All those things are true and good. But the loneliness of life is real. And the real thing that we need to understand is this challenge. There's this challenge of joy. There's this challenge of contentment to find this joy and contentment in the faithful friendship of Jesus Christ. And that's the challenge because what I'm getting at there is to believe that Jesus is enough. Because when we doubt that Jesus is enough, then we're going to look to idols. We're going to look into temptation and look to sin to satisfy our life in ways that it will actually destroy our lives. We need, what we need in these moments is to remember the gospel. And that is one of the ways that we can encourage one another very strongly to re remind one another of the gospel. And because this is what we need. And to remind you of the gospel, because this is what every single person here this morning needs to know, whether married or not, or single or not, is this, that Jesus promises this wonderful gift of friendship, that he is with you. He is with you to the end of the age, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he no longer calls you servants, but he calls you a friend, and he gives you everything you need to know his friendship. He gives you his word. He gives you his church. He gives you the, his spirit. And just to think about that for a moment, the spirit of Christ dwells within you, that he is with you. Always, And that is the beauty of the gospel. And there's more to this as well. That, and frankly, this is actually one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life, to truly and firmly believe this. That to believe the fact that Jesus loves you, but it's more than that. My youngest son right now is saying, Daddy, I love you. And he's saying something else right now. He's like, Daddy, I like you. I'm like, oh, thanks, kid. And that is a true distinction that we need to remind ourselves of. That Jesus loves you, yes, and Jesus likes you. 
that he wants to spend time with you. He delights over you. I love that picture from Zephaniah, that God sings and rejoices and exults over each and every single one of you. And so the wonderful promise of, of the gospel is this, that he will be there for you in ways that no one else ever will, that he is your faithful friend. In fact, uh, like going, this is something I said last week, that one of the dominant metaphors for the relationship that you have with Christ is that Christ, that Scripture calls you his bride because every single one of us is wired for intimacy with God, that we long for him. But here's the wonderful truth, that he, that when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us, that God will show up in our life. And I'll end with this story. There's a, a, there's a missionary, Lauren Kell, and she was asked, told, uh, she got a phone call once upon a time, and when the Berlin Wall fell down and the Iron Curtain opened up, that her, well, her supervisor said, hey, I want you to go to Moscow. I want you to go to Moscow and be a part of this uh, mission team here. And she's quite honest. She actually just, like, hung up the phone. No, and like she said, I do not want to go alone. And she was having this conversation, yes, with her supervisor. She had a, that separate conversation wonderfully with the Lord. And the Lord told her this. He's like, you're not going to go alone. I want you to go, but I am going with you. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And see, that is an incredible promise that God gives to every single one of us. And that is something that we can truly put our hope in. And when we put our hope in that wonderful promise, we're putting our hope in God's love. We're putting our hope in God's commitment and faithfulness to us. Because he has wonderfully called us fr his friend. He, and in fact, more than that, he has actually called us his. And that is a sweet joy. And we can be confident in that. And that we can be, make bold decisions in that. And we all need to encourage one another in that wonderful reality that he calls us his and, and he is ours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your good words that you have given to us. We thank you that you truly are enough. That you give us your love. You give us your grace. You give us your presence. And Father, we pray that you would give each of us tangible moments where we are confident, where we experience your presence through your word, through prayer, through your people. And Father, we pray that you would help every, every person here to encourage one another to follow you, that we would use our relationships to glorify you, that you would help us to seek opportunities to build your kingdom. And Father, we just pray that each and every single person here would know of your faithfulness and your presence. We thank you for giving us your spirit, that you are with us to the ends of the age. And we pray that your spirit would help us to become more like you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.